Something about painting just... What? Maybe it's too still. Hi, I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles, but I'm not in Los Angeles, I'm in New York. I'm here with John Mejias, who's in New York. Hey, everybody. This is We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist. Except this week. We're talking to the curator about. A studio visit isn't really about looking at anything. As far as I'm concerned, this is a studio visit. It's about finding sort of a point of reference between yourself and that person. That's the difference between like a gallerist and a curator. Curators have different criteria. I would love to know that when I work with an artist, it's a long lasting relationship. I'm like, a duck. I like the idea of picking someone and staying with them. This episode, we're going to talk to Amanda Schmidt about. Sometimes there will be an artist who the majority of their work, past, present, future, is not of interest to me at all, but then there might be one piece that's just amazing. And then there you have the dilemma like, do I stand for this artist as a whole? By just showing this one piece that I like, does that mean I'm signing on to the whole package? Hello, hello. She's uh, mostly a curator. And so we're gonna talk about curating today because mm. you can learn about everything. You can learn about artists, you can learn about art writers, you can learn about curating. And then you're gonna be like, I know what I'm it's talking about. It's a college about. class over here. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> this is like This is like school with swearing. <laughs> Gotta get some dealers on here. We had some art dealers on yeah. here. I'm like, what's the secret? And they're like, there's no secrets. Everything is normal and above board. The last sort of circuit would be like an auctioneer. Yeah. But then you'd have to learn how to talk real, real fast. Yeah, I learned some about that. It's it's called barking. Because that's a carnival barker. But someone's explaining it, and they're like, when you have to talk a lot as part of a job, Mm -hmm. you you tend to move your words toward the front of your mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than talking back here, which is like a normal conversational yeah. voice. But then you talk up here when you're trying to do like a commercial and that thing, you're talking real fast because you're not wearing your throat out as fast. So you're oh. not hurting your voice. And so that's why barkers, they talk like that and have that voice. And it's very, they're shaping the words with their mouth and their tongue in the front of their face. Yeah. And that's also, I think, the whole thing with strip club DJs, how they're yeah. always like, Lana, welcome to lovely Lana. Because they're shaping the words with their tongue, yeah. not with their throat. I've never know? been to a strip club, so I didn't know that there was a DJ. There is a, a strip club anybody. voice <laughs> that they all Do you think that, that auctioneers and strip club DJs see the same speech pathologists <laughs> to learn I, this technique? I bet they did. And if they don't, it's worth investigating. Yeah. Werner Herzog did a short film about... Auctioneers. I think it was called the auctioneers. It was oh, like all really? the cattle auctioneers. And he's oh, like, yeah. this language that they use, it isn't a new What language. is Herzog not made a film about at this point? Yeah, Garbage? I, I don't like trash. <laughs> I don't like to see the way that it mounts up like a great offensive obelisk of pain before all of us and we will be deluged in a tsunami of If we're not careful, when her going to interview you for like an hour. So you are curating the art. <laughs> Can the world not be bare? <laughs> Was ist Kunst? Wo ist Kunst? Verum. So we're here with Amanda Schmidt, mostly a curator. We love to hear about where people grew up and how they first got into art. Especially, how did you decide what your place in the art world was going to be? Because a lot of people don't go, oh, I'm going to curate. Other people would make macaroni pictures, and you'd be like, I'm putting that 
one on this fridge. <laughs> oh my god, I wish I could say that it goes all the way back to macaroni. Okay, so speaking of garbage, I am from the town where Garbage, the band, was formed. Okay. So I'm just tying things full circle. Kinshasa? Do you know where that is? No. No. Madison, Wisconsin. All right. I okay. hope I'm is not Is that their claim wrong. to fame? I mean, this is, we need a fact checker here. <laughs> Madison, well, we've got the internet. Oh. Well, when you come from Wisconsin, you know, or even from like a, you know, non-cosmopolitan place, I think people take great pride in, in anything like very well known. Like my grandmother is from the town where Liberace is from. They also have the primate research labs in Madison. They do. Yeah. Because I like to read books about monkeys and yeah. it's always like university like Madison, Wisconsin. And yeah. So. When I was a kid and we would go to the zoo, it was a lot of the monkeys that were actually being tested. So they were weird monkeys? Yeah, it was it was a lot of the same kind of monkey. They are each slightly different in different ways. You're like, that one's a little lethargic. That yeah. one's like energized. It's not like that we had like chimpanzees and gorillas and like exotic lemurs. It was like the rat of the monkey world. Oh, like, just capuchins like, wall to wall. Yeah, it was the, the ones that with like the big red and blue butts just like over and over oh, and over again. Oh, mandrills. And then I remember when I was like 12 or 13 learning that that program was being shut down at the zoo. And then all the monkey cages went away. Chris Farley also. From right. Madison. I believe Big that. Big claim to fame for us. You kind of got that twang. Oh that Fargo my twang. gosh. If you only oh my heard gosh. my Wisconsin accent come out, I would be talking like this, yeah. talking about the Packers, getting my badger bag, sneaking right past you to get wow. the ranch sauce. <laughs> You can talk a lot without moving your mouth a lot because it's cold. Kind of make oh, your uh, boy, I never your, thought of it your that scarf way. down. That's that it. is That's right. an incredibly apt theory, young man. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Appreciate it. You guys like cheese, is what I hear. We do. We like cheese and beer. And but I mean, is that true, or is it just a stereotype? You don't actually like cheese. Oh, I love cheese. Mm. Who doesn't love cheese? That's love the problem. Cheese. Everyone loves cheese. So. And I love beer. Yeah. Funny thing is I'm lactose intolerant. When I moved to New York, I became lactose that intolerant. Is, it was sort of like an existential crisis. High culture took crisis. a bite out of you, finally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my accent sort of slowly wanes. Ugh. Yeah. And now I talk, you know, like Katherine Hepburn, naturally. Yeah, you really have like a real <laughs> elegant way of yeah. talking about cheese and beer. Anger and excitement will bring it back. Are you from the Midwest? No, I'm from D.C., my natural way of talking is like a real weird city, white trash, kind of overlappy thing. So, uh, art. So yeah, it doesn't go back to curating, you know, macaroni, macaroni drawings. Sure. The long version, I don't come from a family that took me to art. And I don't come from a culture where contemporary art was a high value. When I was a child, I maybe went to one or two art museums ever, and I don't really remember them making much of an impact. It was really music that got me into art because music got me into sort of the DIY aesthetic of posters and screen printing and t-shirts, show posters, photography, album covers. So what was the first music that you were getting into? Are you embarrassed? The first music that I like was introduced to, I was, listen to oldies a lot and whatever my sure, dad was yeah. listening to but the first i think tape i got was ace of bass i mean that's a real diy scene <laughs> right there yeah I mean, ace of ba- and artie artie but then hell. when cds came out my first cd was alanis Morissette, jagged little pill okay and then i got sublime sublime uh-huh. 
And then I had a babysitter that introduced me to Prodigy, and then I was like, I'm. Which one was the bridge was to like art? When I be- went from like eight year old to nine year old, yeah, and that what was, was the, the bridge to art? What so in art? Madison, Wisconsin, has a huge music culture. Right. So there's all these like the underground. Yeah, it's a college town. There's always bands coming in, and there were a lot of DIY or makeshift kind of basement venues. Just going to these shows, like as early as 12, 13, 14 years old, oh, and being young. around college kids kind of like seeped in. That was at the time of like indie, okay. and like moogs were the instrument so everybody was using. Like it was just music and art, it was all together. Was the video a big thing in the beginning? Video was videos huge. Were video. like, is that how you made part of the transition for you? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I got really into Jimmy Joe Roche, who did videos for Dan Deacon. But I remember going to those shows and being like totally mesmerized by the video. And then I started getting more into music videos. Musicians were starting to collaborate with visual artists, not just on these kind of MTV style videos, but things like animation, stop motion animation, Marcel Zama, you know, getting involved with doing costuming and choreography. And I mean, of course, art and music have always sort of gone hand in hand, but... That certainly, I think, was my bridge. And then I got really into photography, and I spent the last couple of years of high school in the dark room, and my fingers always smelled like oh, chemicals. the That's chemicals. Great. Yeah, I'm going way back. I haven't that talked. It's fun. fun to remember those moments. I actually wanted to come to New York, Yeah. and I got into the Steinhardt School of Art at NYU. Last minute, I decided... Hell no, I don't want to go, like, start my life with debt. Like, just right off the bat, I just was looking at how expensive it would be, and I decided to stay in Madison, and I went to the university there, and I signed up for an art major. So sensible. Yeah. (laughs) Not that sensible. You're still an art major, though. It was a difference of, like, (laughs) $48,000 a semester for education, or $2,000. Right. Yeah, it was sensible. It was also practical and the only realistic option I would never change like the decision that I made there because then I ended up coming to New York anyway so it's not like it was my only it's it's still usually still there New York yeah I majored in studio art but I figured out about two weeks in this is a very important moment (laughs) 14 days yeah really it was right (laughs) off the bat I realized I did not want to be an artist it was like light bulb I am not an artist. Can you remember the exact project you were working on Absolutely. when it happened? <laughs> I was assigned to go to the MCA Chicago uh, to see a Dan Flavin exhibition. Oh, that would have done it for me. Mm-hmm. If I had two weeks into deciding I was going to be an artist, someone had said, I have to go to another city in another state, and then it's Dan Flavin, I probably would have killed myself. It was like, like right surrender. Away. There's no way. But you didn't have to make anything. You just had to look. What was it about that (laughs) exhibition that made you be like, forget it? The vitamin D depletion? It's Dan Flavin. (laughs) All right. It's the emotional equivalent of like 1929. Just like an atomic bomb. I really, really tried hard to understand what I was looking at because I had never seen anything like that before. Okay. And I'm 18 years old. And you were intimidated or were you just like, fuck Wait, you've never seen anything like a fluorescent light? (laughs) Good question. I've never seen anything that wasn't like this. It wasn't just the lights. It was the light plus the way that they were titled. And I was trying to like think untitled monument to Vladimir, not even Vladimir Tatlin, monument to V Tatlin. V period Tatlin. This is the first time I'm looking at 
What does entitled mean? What does a title mean? And what untitled, does a title mean untitled, if it's untitled? Really, that made an impression on you, though. <laughs> then, in parentheses, we've got this figure that he's paying homage to, but he's not saying the whole name. It was blowing my mind. It was really not Midwestern. But I wasn't offended, and I wasn't frustrated. I was just kind of in awe. Okay, I'm in Chicago, the big city, and Museum of Contemporary Art... My professor told me to come here, look at this show. I know there's something that I'm supposed to see right. here. And maybe there's... you're like, am I supposed to like this? We were supposed to write about it. Okay. So what's really important was this was my first time thinking critically about art mm-hmm. and then going home and writing about it. And as I was writing, I remember I went up to the teacher at the end of the class that week when we had returned, and I was almost scared to tell her, I don't want to make art. (laughs) This isn't for me, but I want to be around it, and I want to dive into it, and I want to eat it, and I want my life to be about this thing. You're not saying you saw Dan Flavin's art and it made you not want to make art. You're saying you saw Dan Flavin's art and it made you want to study it it. because the studying was more interesting than making or more interesting than having to compete with that or be in a space where that was important it wasn't about competing it was about the process of thinking about it you wanted to think about it or you didn't want to like i did want to yeah like that part was fascinating for me calling up some guys and being like give me one long one one short one and make sure that they're mostly white like that didn't seem exciting to you because that was what Dan Flavin does. Yeah, you know, yeah. I was trying to understand why this I can see also fluorescent going, light, yeah. this tone, that length. Why are you doing this? It's a good question. Yeah, it was the say, question. I need to like dedicate my life. Vorum ist Kunst. That makes sense. I think Vorum is why. Verum. Verum is where, Kunst. Where, yeah, I think so, so. Did you yeah, stay in school with this major for the whole year? Did I stayed just... for all four years, and I like decided. Oh. <laughs> So right off the bat. Two weeks in, you was like, I don't want to be an art, art major. And then you're like, but I'm going to keep going. Yeah, because I felt like I was behind the scenes. But you would have had to make a lot of art. Yeah, but most of it was pretty bad. Like, mm. you're not worried, like, I'm going to make something out of Sculpey and then I'm going to get kicked out. And, or you're like, this is easier than other majors. It felt like I had an aptitude and skill. Like, I can draw. Okay. I wasn't terrible. And I'm. I can also follow lesson plans and get the job done that's the sad thing about art school is sometimes you can just get the job done and that's fine i'm a minimalist everybody yeah i'm dan flavin (laughs) that's what he did well i did one project where i just bought a white t-shirt and i said i'm gonna wear nothing but this t-shirt for the next i think it was like we had six weeks to work on the project no other shirt or no other thing no no other shirt i changed the pants and the okay. shoes, right, okay. but I just wore this white shirt for six weeks. So Is this our Bruce Springsteen inspired project? <laughs> no, I wanted to sort of like see how the t-shirt would. I'd totally get, see that at the Whitney. Just like how <laughs> yeah, it would sort of good. show my, my signs of daily life. I also yeah. thought that this was I'm like the least you. amount of work I could possibly do to get this project done. You're really explaining where like things come <laughs> from. I like it. It's good. But it happened to coincide <laughs> with the week that I had to meet my boyfriend's parents for the first time too. And I was like, no, I'm wearing the white shirt. How did that go over? I don't think they noticed. Yeah. Yeah. The Midwest, pretty chill. You don't have to really I had really a friend in school up. who, like, he was a great draftsman. He was really good. But he eventually just decided he wanted to make a boat. Mm-hmm. So every project was just a clearly just part of the boat. So you go That's sailing. a great project, you know, though. But it wasn't art. 
boat. Yeah. You know, he, he would show an oar, like, leaning against the wall. It's like, yeah. oh, it's a Duchamp reference. And it's like, yes, but mostly the boat needs an oar because yeah. then I can row and it's a rowboat. And it'd be like, here are the drawings for the boat. Those are just drawings so you could cut the wood for the boat. And then he made the boat. And the boat wasn't like an arty boat. It was just wood. And it was after a while. Was just, you aren't making it. You're just doing that. But what yeah. did he do with the boat? He sailed. He wanted to like have a boat and sail around like a little It's you know, like a successful Bastian Otter. Exactly. Boat, he did not die, yeah. right? I was a guy that would dig holes. That was his art. He would dig holes would be about the labor. Yeah, but that is an actual conceptual project, (laughs) not calling it a conceptual project so he could have holes. And you were just trying to get through it. Did you tell the other artists, I'm just here undercover? No. I started curating. So, like, right off the bat, I, like, was the art student that was organizing shows. I didn't really have to be undercover. I think it was clear what my interests were, I hope. Do you like to organize things? Be, like, the stage mom? It's a lot of responsibility. Do you like drop cloths? Yeah. Paint rollers? No, of course I love to organize. My boyfriend teases me because I like to spreadsheet as leisure activities. Okay. (laughs) Excel spreadsheeting on a weekend. Who admitted she's a big Agnes Martin fan. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't understand how that works. And then she admitted that she masturbated to spreadsheets. If there's a whiteboard with like really good arrows and stuff, or somebody has like a timetable that's like 3.15, it gets her hot. That's like a whole nother level. I'm not there yet. If you were, you wouldn't have to say so on the podcast, but that exists. She's not a totally non-functional person in society either locked away somewhere. She's just like a person like everyone else. You know, she dates people and then she's like, okay, but you want to know something? And And I'm like- there's the day you have to have the Excel spreadsheet. Like that. I wish I had a really good pun. Were you curating things (laughs) in college? Yeah, I started doing video shows. Video is like my- core guiding force. Why video and not film or video and not performance? Like what was it about the specific, like having a little monitor in a room in the art space that made you go like, this is the interesting thing to me. I guess I'm, I'm currently exploring that right now in a show that I'm curating, which is called Video Wake. And it's all about the life and death of the medium analog videotape. Right. But why video and not film? That's something I haven't explored yet. I guess we could start tonight. Okay, so My, film, you sit down and there's a narrative. It's, it's time and sound. And, yeah. and, but it's not about the object of the screen, you know, in any way. Most of the time, you're, you mean like narrative or like full format film? To yeah, me, it's, it's really like, about the medium. Like I'm interested in the analog medium of videotape. The actual tape. Yeah. And uh, so if it's on digital, you're like, fuck no, no, this. No, that and then it's expansion into digital. Mm. But so then the question becomes more complicated today when most film is actually digitally filmed. Right, but video art is a specific format, you know, we think of, which is like in a gallery art space, when you're you're gonna look at a painting, you look at a sculpture, you walk, you walk, and then you stand and maybe sit on a bench and you see a piece as opposed to film, which is like, it's long, mm-hmm. you plan around it, you're not necessarily mixing it in with other art. Yeah. So the context that that art is usually shown, and the stuff that you've curated, as far as I'm aware, is mostly stuff that's shown in that kind of gallery context. Is it more in contrast to the other objects in an art context that makes it interesting? or like? I like the attention span required for video. 
short or long. Long. Opinion. I like the longer attention span. It's like me going to look at that damn Flavin and spending 20 minutes trying. I don't do that anymore. Like, I don't go and look at a damn Flavin for 20 minutes. I miss those days. That that was great. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you can still do that. You can just I, I look mean, at a fluorescent could. light for 20. You can look who up does? for I mean, 20. We're going to turn this into the Dan Flavin bashing hour. But he's dead. <laughs> Whenever there's an artist I hate and they're dead. He's here with I us. He's blinking like. It's like Dan Flavin as Tinkerbell reminding us that he's right here. Listeners should know that one of our lights is broken currently. Yeah, it's blinking it above us. Totally in a vernacular flavor. On the lamps no, but I like video. I like that in order to grasp or understand the piece, you really do have to watch it. You, you have to spend more than four seconds. Unless it's a four-second video. Right, yes. Films, like, or, like, everyday movies, mm-hmm. you, there's a preview. We usually have some idea of what a movie's about before we go. Mm-hmm. Video, art, you have no idea, usually. You know, maybe know the artist, but you don't know what you're getting into. And you mm-hmm. have to kind of meet it more than halfway a lot of times. You have to be like, I'm going to sit and see if this loop repeats. Mm-hmm. He's like, is this just 20 minutes? Is this ambient? Mm-hmm. Does something happen in this? You have no idea what you're getting into, and you don't know how long to stand there. Is that interesting? Like, the, the excitement of not knowing? Yeah, I think it's also interesting to see how other people respond to video. Uh, it's like this... People watching. Yeah, it's kind of like understanding the psychology of a person based on how much time they will spend looking at a video. So if you were looking at, like, music and overlap with video, that's one thing. But was there, like, Nam June Pike or somebody else who was, like, an early person, like, you saw, you know, video art in the gallery context, where you're like, oh, that's... It was a formative experience. Yeah. Force Field? Force Field, what I loved about their videos was it felt like a test. How long will you put up with this for? <laughs> Do you like to enjoy life? <laughs> Because so far, you're like, I really like looking at the fluorescent light and being like, what the fuck is this here for? And then you're like, I like this because it's like a test. How yeah. long you, do you just like art as a sort of assault on the concept of entertainment? Yeah, I guess the, the question I keep coming back to is why? Why like, did they I make it? Or why like, yeah, like early it? Bruce Nauman videos. Right. Yeah. Like wondering, like, why is he, why is he walking around this square like why what is like the motivation for the maker but in the first generation of like video art or conceptual performance Mm -hmm. that's a good question but the second generation it's no longer a good question because it's like because they get paid Mm. you get a teaching job like you could do any weird thing and once people have decided it's art Mm -hmm. do you have to ask why anymore you know or is that not a question you ever ask I'm always like, you can only be enigmatic in the first generation. Why would you do that? But then after that, it's like, it's a career path. Yeah. You know, like it works. You're like, why did you paint that in nail polish? Because nobody's painted anything in nail polish yet. I guess I have to remain hopeful that there is another generation. You know, it's easy to think that like all the ideas have been used up, but I think that would be a really hopeless view of art. Sure. I feel like I've read this over and over and over again, that like all of the great ideas have been used for art. Yeah, and everything that you see is just sort of the same thing being recontextualized. And yeah, but they're critics. If they believed in new ideas habitually, they would be the, the creators, not the critic of the thing. Mm-hmm. Being a critic is, by definition, often having been an artist, then gotten frustrated with it, and then being like, 
when is something new going to happen? I don't know what it would look like, but show it to me. You know, they're hungry, mm-hmm. right? And the artists are like, oh, there's lots of new ideas. And then they you know, that's not new to me. But every single thing that is new has been dismissed as not new by the people who couldn't see the new part of it for like 10, 20 years. And then people go back like, oh, that was really new, you know, like at the time. Yeah. In retrospect, you see how it was doing something. That's- Early pop art was called Neo Dada. I didn't know that. Yeah, like Rauschenberg and Johns, they would say, oh, it's Neo Dada. Huh. You know, and then I'm sure surrealism just makes a lot of sense. Symbolism to people, and Picasso is called neo primitivist. You know, like Mm -hmm. it was just like until it's got a context, people just sort of think of it as belonging to to what they can identify. Because you can always link something to something else. So you're curating the other artists or the video artists at the school. Yeah, so then I started um, doing like. You know, full-on video screenings. I got a position at a gallery there in Madison, started getting grants, and then that naturally transitioned into working with performance. So I started working with performance artists, inviting people from New York and L.A. actually to come to Madison. So you were curating for the school? Yeah, the school had a, had a union gallery, and then there was a theater I think one reason I was so drawn to video is there was a huge film scene in Madison and you could have a film studies major and there were all these kind of high snobbery film dudes and there was nobody looking at video. There is no place for video in Madison. That might be another reason as I said, okay, well, let's pay attention to video art. Like, what are these people doing? And like, I fell in love with like Mike Smith and Dara Birnbaum and P.P. Reist. And then I started learning about more contemporary artists that were making video, Jennifer Sullivan and Shannon Moulton and Caleb Lindsay. But at that time was your job basically like to take video artists that were sort of contemporary artists at the time and show them in Wisconsin? Or were you like curating more around specific themes or ideas? I was curating around specific themes, but it was still pretty like rough around the edges. Mm -hmm. Like these are, you know, I'm 19, 20 years old. I didn't even think about it as curating. Like I didn't put my name on it. You were putting a film festival together. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. But it was, you know, both like, you know, legendary video artists like Will Wegman and and Nauman and stuff, but also paired with people like Jimmy Joe Roche, who's making these music videos for road bands. Right. That's cool. And just people that I would find on the internet. I just started googling like video art and i was all over youtube and everybody had their video art on yeah that makes it convenient Mm -hmm. was it a lot of things that were screenings or there also like a lot of objects it's mostly screenings Mm -hmm. so yeah it was like film (coughs) it was like all right tonight's the theme these are the things you're gonna see sit down and let's watch it and you get to use the spreadsheets yeah (laughs) i don't think i was spreadsheeting yet that didn't really come till i moved to new york but so then i moved to new york and continue doing the screenings here. So, so how do you yeah. do that? Because like people Moved to like, New York? <laughs> no, I know how to do it. <laughs> did you have a job or already set up, or did you just... I actually came to uh, intern at Electronic Arts Intermix. And I did have a job set up at a gallery that had just opened in the Lower East Side called Sunday. Were you just, like, working there, or were you curating? I curated a video so screening series. So how do you get into doing that? It's just you know somebody, and they're like, you can be our curator? Like... I do they met. pay curators at that point? Like, how does that even work? Do they pay curators today? <laughs> I have no idea. If no, they do, no let listen- me know. <laughs> no one listening knows how that even works. There are people who are curators who have jobs, right? Persistence. But you don't just knock on someone's door and go, can I curate for you? Like- so with Sunday, I had moved to New York actually halfway through school yeah. to do an internship. I actually interned at a 
place called Flavor Pill, and they had a publication called Art Crush. In addition to kind of organizing shows, I was writing. I was right. writing ever since I saw the Dan Flavin show, because this professor to whom I was scared to tell them I didn't want to be an artist, they said, that's great, keep writing. So I had a blog called Amateur Art Critic. Oh, I've heard of it. Did I you? remember. Was, I wrote a lot. Were you in the same blog circle as like Sea Monster? Yeah, I think okay. so. I was like, all everybody was kind of linking together. Yeah, because we had Carolina on, yeah. and she was talking about the early art blog scene yeah. and how like there was this moment where everybody and there was like Painter NYC where they just put up a painter and it was all just yeah. horrible comments. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> yeah, okay. How's my dealing? Blogspot. Yeah, although everyone's like, oh, all the dirt is on how's my dealing, and I'm like, really? I don't see anything. It's like, oh, they're nice to me. I went in there once and they didn't give me raisins. I was writing a lot. I was basically of the mindset that if I saw something and it made me think, write it down. And I was living by this motto. So I'm 19, just moved to New York for a summer. Mm-hmm. And I read a quote by Ed Halter that says, one can fail at being a professional, but one cannot fail at being an amateur. So that's sort nice. of like how I arrived in New York, and that's how I thought of myself. Just write, just organize things, which in retrospect, it's kind of like, well, I don't work that way anymore. I think a lot more carefully about something before I put it out there into the world. Sure, but it's good to have like an experimental space as an artist, I would imagine. As a nonfiction writer, it's the same thing. It's yeah. good to have like your projects where you're like, this is ambitious and I'm gonna get it exactly right. And then yeah. you have your screw around space where you're like, I just wanna try things. But yeah. did ideas start to like repeat themselves when you were writing on there, that things would start to come up? I definitely learned how to talk about art. I learned how to articulate my own feelings towards things. And I think through writing, you start to learn what your criteria is for curating. What are you interested in? Why are you interested in So other than video, like what was beginning to pop out to you? Performance. Sure, but other than the mediums Mm -hmm. that you curated, like what, what ideas were tending to be interesting to you or what not interesting? Like what things were you like, oh, I'm so sick of this trend. Well, it coincides with moving to New York and learning about all, all these artists who had their communities. I became very interested in not necessarily collectives, but how artists work together as a community. Right. In Madison, it was kind of like individuals. And then I came to New York and I realized a lot of people made work with like dozens of people around them. Like the ideas kind of all happen together. And you mean like they would make a video or something and they've got a whole crew? Or you mean like separate artists just know each other and they're part of a larger community? A little bit of both. Mm -hmm. Like one group that really stood out to me when I first moved to New York was LTTR. Mm -hmm. And like understanding how all of these artists had their own individual practices. The same people would show up in other people's videos or you would go to a book signing and this person would be reading this person's work or it would be a photographer show and that performer was posing. So understanding how there was this constellation of sort of collaboration, which I had never seen before, Mm. that stood out to me. So I find a posting on Craigslist for a gallery assistant at this gallery Sunday. Mm -hmm. I called him and we had a phone interview. It wasn't a scam. scam. (laughs) This is when actually people still use Craigslist to find... Sure. Real things. Real yeah, things yeah. and services. Uh-huh. It was right at the beginning of him opening this gallery, and so I became super involved in every aspect of it. So I, I just gained the gallerist's trust pretty quickly, and he understood that I was you know, more interested in just like sitting at a desk and 
greeting people, was interested in video, and... You could not just sit, you could point. Yes. <laughs> Super important. And say, why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. So he thought that, like, having programming at the gallery would yeah. be good, so I was able to introduce this video screening series called Seven Easy Steps, which took place seven times over the course of one year. That was my debut... And video screening in New York. It was great. Like, oh my god, I remember torturing myself to make it happen because mm. I would like borrow a projector. It was like 2012-ish. This would have been 2009, 2010. Okay. Borrow a projector, borrow speakers. I had to barter to borrow chairs for people to sit on and scrappy. Yeah, nice. scrappy. And I didn't understand that I could get a taxi to like bring the speakers from Brooklyn to Chelsea. So I would actually like go from Bushwick where I was living to Williamsburg to pick up somebody's speakers from a DJ I would know, get on the M train, transfer to the C, get off, walk the four blocks just to get speakers to a gallery and then bring them home that night. It was totally not efficient. Right. But you did learn, I guess what they call in Hollywood production. Yeah. You learn to hustle around and do all that stuff yourself, which yeah. is important. Yeah. Get equipment, get the files. Also, all the files were on CD-ROMs. Nice. <laughs> so I had to actually, like, get the files from the artists, too. These artists better have appreciated all of this. I mean, I, usually people are hustling this much for their own art. I don't think people Helping knew how people much I was either. hustling. Was this stuff that was also available on YouTube? Could you have just <laughs> done that? Some of them, yeah. Also, like the speakers. <laughs> Maybe I could have just asked for a budget to rent speakers. You know, I was just like, I wanted to make it happen. So I found yeah. a way to make it happen. Cool. So people watch that. They, they see the series. Do other people like, approach you and be like, oh, you should do something over here? God, I wish that had happened that at that point. Well, then what happened? How do you get to here, where you are? So I was doing that gig with that gallery for about a year, and it was fun, and it was great, but it just it truly was not paying the bills. Like, right. if we didn't have the money to rent speakers for a video screening, it's just like I wasn't paying rent. So then I got a job working as a front desk assistant at Art Forum magazine, and that was a total dream. Patina had that. Patina hubby? Yeah. Tina, somebody had that job when I was an intern at Art Forum. Yeah. Total dream job. Yeah. So. Oh, my God. It was amazing. Like, I don't want to go down this road, but it was like Mecca to me. It was awesome to end up there. And because I was writing and I had this blog and to sort of surround yourself you know with, like, you know, at this no environment. Point, yeah, no point you had a job where you had to, like, bring people their food. Uh, I made coffee. Okay. That was definitely part of my <laughs> job. You're saying you've always had art jobs. Those are just art oh, jobs, though. Yeah. Like, I graduated from college. I no. worked for Toys R Us for a couple of oh months. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, look at you. No. I worked at Taco Bell. I worked concession stand at a pool. I actually had an overnight job in college. I did overnight security at a health club. Was there a lot like, of In a rural there? area, too. It was weird. Were there goats that were trying to use the treadmills? And you had to be like, no. <laughs> Looking back on that job, it's like, how did my parents... Allow. It was kind of scary. Like this seventeen-year-old girl working the ten a.m. to seven a.m. shift in a rural part of Wisconsin at a small health club. Paid the bills though. I got to you know read, watch video art all night. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's great. You've never been into painting, painters. Well, yeah, you've curated painters, from what I can tell. I'm not anti-painting, but sometimes I'll. T- <laughs> But. <laughs> I'll do studio visits with painters, and I, I... Move your head really fast, and you're like, oh, it's better now. <laughs> <laughs> Spinning around. 
I truly find myself like flabbergasted because I just don't have the vocabulary. But don't to... you like? Isn't the flabbergasting part of your your whole thing that excites you? Right? You're like, why? Yeah, right? yeah. Something about painting just. Why? Maybe it's too still. <laughs> it is very consistently stiller than video. Yeah, art. it's not moving enough. <laughs> it's really not moving. Yeah. Do you do a lot of studio visits? I do a lot of studio visits. Do you like it? Yeah, I love it. Do you ever have any weird ones, like weird stories of studio visits? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, give us a weird story. <laughs> One of my favorite first studio visits was with an artist named Michael Zwack, who oh, yeah, I know. is yeah. now He's sadly a, passed away. But he was an older... He was an older artist. Yeah. He's like from the 80s, like Robert Longo. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He's founded Hall Walls <coughs> in Buffalo, New York, and then moved to New York with that whole group in 1973. They ended up on the Bowery and Ken Mare. Somebody introduced me to him, not because of his art. I was interested in rituals and music. I had heard this folk story about a story called Makunaima, which is sort of about a maze or a labyrinth. And it was sort of haunting me and I couldn't get What's it out of story? my mind. Okay, I'll t- yeah. can I remember the story of Makunaima? <sighs> okay, so in the jungle, in South America, there is a fickle, backwards-footed, clever creature named Makunaima. Mm-hmm. Makunaima is someone who follows travelers or those on a journey through the jungle. And if Makunaima gets on your trail, you will become lost. He likes to distract you. He mm-hmm. likes to... Uh, confuse you He's and throw you off course. He's a figure, yes. as they say in yes. Jungian studies. <laughs> yes, and so he has backwards feet, so like he'll walk around you yeah, and you'll yeah. think that you've gone in a this other direction. Looking, yeah, yeah. Okay. So if you're traveling, I haven't thought of this story for like six years. If you're traveling and you notice, if you're smart enough, clever enough to realize that Makunaima is on your trail, what you're supposed to do is to pick up grasses and to weave a pattern, like a tapestry or a small... Of course, sure. ...weaving. And then you're supposed to leave it for Makunaima because Makunaima loves beautiful things. That's the only thing that will distract him. So in this culture where this story comes from, art making and crafts is a huge value. And so they're taught to make these beautiful weavings and creativity and uniqueness is a virtue. If you make a weaving and the more different it is, the more unique it is, the more one of a kind, the more time that Makunaima will find it and he'll spend admiring it and that will give you the opportunity to find your way again. That's okay. like So that Black. story was haunting me. So somebody from the more the music world said, You need to meet this guy, Michael Swack. I think he can help you understand why this story is haunting you. Yeah. Is he a Makunaima so expert? Marvelous. I don't know. We not, I don't think we ever talked about Makunaima. I went to his studio, and you enter his studio first by going through his... He practices voodoo. He's actually a Hangwanasaya, a high voodoo priest. So he has his... Shrine? Yeah, his voodoo shrine. And I had never really been around voodoo before. And right. And this was serious. This wasn't like... Very serious. Okay. Very... In fact, I then became very close with Michael and I ended up doing a solo exhibition with him in Chicago in 2015. We spent a lot of time together. He actually did a show where he did a voodoo ceremony and blessed all of his paintings with good luck. Did it work? 
I would say so. Was it work for sale? Yes, it was for sale. Did it sell? I have a show that just went up. I sold five paintings a day, but if yeah. I need to kill a chicken, I'm on it. No, it did not sell very well. We sold one piece, though. So, so I guess we would have to ask the person spirit, that we right? sold it to. Talk to Oshu. Well, initially, our question was, do we have a weird Eshu studio Eshu. visit? The answer is voodoo. Yeah. That was one of many. <laughs> many to him or many weird ones? Many weird studio Give us visits. another weird one. This is what you're here for. Visits. Is it? What are you going to say? Yeah. The hung it real straight? We love an anecdote. My studio visits were weird only because my apartment Did you ever have was a... back in the day. You had to stand on the bed. Yeah. The apartment was so narrow that like I would paint on this wall and had a table over the bed and I would sit up in bed, put a chair on the bed and paint there. So if I had a studio visit, someone had to walk onto the bed to see the art yeah. and look around. Oh, and then one time I had a whole class come because it was like all these students were like, oh, we're going to see the Whitney Video Artists. This <laughs> is like pre-hipster Bushwick, yeah. dead of summer, August. All of these kids come in sideways into my apartment. So I'm standing on the bed in my socks. Yeah. Like, and this, art? kids, is an artist's studio. Yes. And This is the artist. But a few years later, them were like, oh, that was so inspiring. And I'm like, that was inspiring? That was like saying, like, I really, I wanted to become a race car driver because I saw you run that red light. You presented the weirdness. I guess I was the problem. Case. Weird isn't necessarily a problem. No. That's the whole premise of contemporary art is weird things can be okay. Mm -hmm. That should be a title of the show. <laughs> the Weird, things can, weird okay. things can be okay. Contemporary art, so 1960 to 2010. So speaking of weird, <laughs> at the same time that I moved to New York, there was this party called Weird. Did you guys ever go there? Uh, yeah, I never went to it. Weird spelled with the E before the I. That's Just weird. For, it's mm -hmm. weird, yes. That was like a hugely formative experience for me too. It was put on by Weird Records and the whole idea, and this sort of ties into my interest also with, with analog video, is Weird Records focused on analog electronica. And so all the concerts were electronic music, but like presented like analog. Him and sort of this group, it, it was founded by the artist Peter Shulworth. He started it in 2003, which is actually the year that MySpace went online. So at the same time that like people were going online to connect yeah. with each other, he wanted to sort of provide this sort of anti-movement where actually to connect, you had to go to this bar on Wednesday night. It was at Home Sweet Home on Christie Street every Wednesday for 10 years. And... I had just moved to New York. Someone told me to go to Weird, and I didn't know a lot of people. And what I loved about Weird is they pumped the bar with this smoke machine. And it was this tiny bar, but it would just be like total fog. And it was incredible music. You could dance. Was that like the aerial like, pink kind of? Because in LA, there was like a whole bunch of, a lot of electronica, a lot yeah. of smoke machines, a lot of one strap shirts, and a lot of headbands. Oh, I think you're like thinking a, of misshapes. No, I just mean the whole scene. Oh. Like, was it a similar kind of vibe? No, this was like a neo-goth. What was important is you couldn't really see people. Right. That's good. And yeah. I really liked the idea of being alone with the music. You were alone, but you were together. Like, not having to, like, socialize, still choosing to be together physically in this space that was, like, damp and smelly and wet and weird. Did, you make, and did it make you go, why? Every night. <laughs> it answered the question, why? And the answer was community. The answer was dampness. What was the answer? <laughs> dampness. I don't know. I mean, yeah, it was the community. It gave me a sense of belonging. 
in New York City in this place that I still hadn't like figured out the codes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing is I'm at the art form office and like you could tell who had been at Weird the night before because everybody smelled like smoke machine. I like that smell. I still want to continue on the studio visits. Yes. Do you do a lot of research on them? Are you taking a chance? You're going there like, wait a minute, you're a shyster. This is bullshit. Hmm. Very rarely do, do people do studio visits going, is this going to be a scam? Yeah. Andy Fraser had a story that they went, the guy had like one painting. I've certainly showed up at studios where people haven't had any work at all. I've done that. Yeah, people go, um, I want to do a studio visit, and you go, I make a painting, I ship it out. So if yeah. someone does a studio visit at my apartment, they're going to often see one painting because I've just, I'm working. <laughs> it doesn't bother me so much because... A studio visit isn't really about looking at anything. As far as yeah. I'm concerned, this, this is a this studio is visit. It's about finding sort of a point of reference between yourself and that person. You're figuring out what they're about. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what a studio visit with Dan Flavin would have been like. <laughs> My feeling is it would have been like, I have a lot of acid, and you would have been like, good, you'll need it. <laughs> and then he'll be like, do you want some? And then you'd be like, if you give me a lot, I'll put you in a show. And then he's like, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> and that's most artists in the 60s. Yeah. So this is interesting if you're on speed and they're like, oh, then give it to me because I have to be here. And I would have loved to have done a studio visit with Lee Lozano. Because <laughs> the thing with Lee Lozano is you are drugs. the work of art. You would be given so many drugs. Or she would that week be deciding a week where she was no drugs at all. And that would be the experiment. So sort of sobriety. So is. if you, she would take drugs away from you, you'd walk in and be like, it's yeah, and then she would like write a chart service. about like, you know, the reactions of people who have their grass taken away. You would become the work. Yeah. I would be a terrible curator because I go to a studio visit. I want to see some product. I want to see some images. And I'm so basic. Like, I think that's the difference between like a gallerist art. and a curator. Hmm. Whoa, there's a difference. All right. Hit We're us. Ready. <laughs> well, gallerists, you have to, to have a product. Sure. They yeah. are in the business of selling art. Yeah. But you're interested in the artist as a intellectual investment? They're like a conduit for an idea. Because Anu said the same thing. She said that when she's picking her artist for her project, she's looking at the artist as can this person, what, what they will produce later, not what they've already made, but what will they produce later be, it's something that she can work with, like a job interview in a sense. Yeah. You're like, who are you? Curators have different criteria. Like sometimes there will be an artist who's the majority of their work, past, present, future, is not of interest to me at all, but then there might be one piece that's just amazing. And then there you have the dilemma, like, do I stand for this artist as a whole? By just showing this one piece that I like, does that mean I'm signing on to the whole package? Uh, that depends on, like, what do you see your, your overall goal is? Do you, do you have an answer to that question? Because that's interesting. Verum ist Kunst. So you don't know. <laughs> it's a big question. I mean, I would love to know that when I work with an artist, it's a long-lasting relationship. I'm like a duck. I like the idea of, of picking someone and staying with them through like the rest a little, of your like life. Like those little yellow ducks that follow the, the well, mama ducks duck. Well, ducks are monogamous. Well, it's because of that screw penis thing. <laughs> Something <laughs> Have biological. Have you ever seen a duck's penis? It's shaped like a screw, and yes. I feel like, like you don't really want to be doing gangbangs with that. No wonder. You know, it explains a lot. 
But yeah, no, I like I like to work with certain artists like multiple times. So it's like a job interview. Yeah, I see it as more of a ecosystem. It does make sense because you do get people who have their curators and then they do end up like working together a lot, like yeah. in different ways, like and over time and they don't can't predict it. Yeah. Okay, you're you're a gallery girl, then you're like curating the series. Mm-hmm. But then at a certain point you become a curator and you get to go around and curate things. Like Mm-hmm. How does the world let you do that? It's a hustle, hustle. What's sure. the hustle, though? Okay, so the, as the story continues... Sure, ready. Video and performance naturally leads into an interest in sound. Sound artists that work with video, artists that use sound as a medium. I'm starting to travel a lot, and I like how malleable sound is, how these files can be transferred. I think ultimately it like all kind of goes back to my interest with music from a very young age. So I I left Art Forum and I went to go work at The Hole. I go back into the gallery world and I'm gallery girl again. But I'm really like, I want to curate. I'm back in the gallery. How can I make a show work here? Can I make a spreadsheet? Yeah. (laughs) It's at The Hole when I really start to fall in love with spreadsheets, though. Okay. So that's the year of the spreadsheet passion. Right. I'm working with the database. and Like, I felt the pressure for sales for the first time. Like, I really had to sell there, too. And so you're just like spending all your time going through these Rolodexes and I... What was the feedback system in that? Is it like, if you don't sell something, you're fired? Or is it you were a partner, you get a commission? I truly had to sell to make my living. So it was commission? It was commission, yeah. I'm there every day, you sell, you get a paycheck. Okay. It was like survival. All of it was survival. So did they already have a client base that was coming in? Or were you developing also like contacts with like people who might buy shit? A little bit of both. That's a different step, right? Like meeting collectors and things. Yeah. I mean, making commission, it has to be your sale, your client. So yeah, I would have to meet these people. Where did you meet them? They would come to the gallery. So you'd be the person there when they showed up. It was a huge gallery, but like there's like two of us working there. Right. When we would do art fairs and after a year I had had enough. I had had enough in New York. I was like, I gotta get out of here. This isn't what I signed up for. So I left and I went to Berlin. Like any good New Yorker <laughs> who wants to good leave choice. New York. It's either LA or Berlin, right? Yeah, exactly. And I started an experimental space of my own. I know you're gonna ask the question, well, how do you go about doing that? In Berlin? <laughs> I'm not asking. In Berlin, yeah. you go, I have $8. And they go, oh, we give you loft space, the fireman pool, here you go. That's exactly how it went. Shit is different over there. Except it was Barner Herzog that I actually <laughs> did the lease with. This pole, I've put the grease of my mother's fat on call, it. What did you call the space? A thin place. I was really interested in the idea of sort of the liminal space and this sort of idea of what happens when you're not here nor there, but more in like a psychological state of mind. This can be produced through meditation, through trance, through deja vus through psychotropic drugs. I was interested in these sort of very liminal moments. And it's kind of like what I experienced with the damn Flavin. Like, (laughs) what's happening? And then you come back to real life. So the exhibition was supposed to experiment with that. How long did you do that? It was um, a three-month project. Was it like kind of like conceived like in a pop-up way? Like this is. It was three months is how much I had the loft for. But I mean, you knew ahead of time you were going to do that. Like yeah. people have a lot more success with that. If they go, I'm going to start this. And then that's a whole life change. I threw all my eggs in this basket. Like I actually, when I left the, New York. The liminal space basket. Yeah. 
I didn't like when I went to Berlin, I wasn't going to Berlin thinking I'm going to start the thin place experimental arts loft. Right. I was just going to Berlin to do studio visits and then I would see what happens from there. But I had thrown away most of my stuff and put what was left in storage in New York. So I kind of, it was sort of like a blank slate at yeah. that point. And I was like, well, what I really want to do is curate and put together shows. So let's go to the city and just go for it. And that's when I started to get real attention. Like people started to notice that, yes, I could I be like, invited to do shows. Yeah, I loved Berlin. Yeah. That was my first time in Berlin, too. That's where I learned German. It's a good place <laughs> to learn German. There's a lot of it there. Yeah. Kunst. It speaks to the word art so much better than art does. <laughs> Kunst. It makes it sound like a kind of animal. Like, oh, that's cool. Uh, it's got me. So I proposed to this art fair untitled. It was around that time. I said, art fairs have all these things happening at them. Like, they're crazy. They're chaotic. Nobody's even looking at the art. And then fairs are hiring all these curators to do these like crazy panels and like dance programs and everything's just getting jumbled up. I propose to you, so I sent in this proposal to do a sound program, to do something that didn't actually add objects to the space, but had a space for non-visual art and where they would actually sort of sacrifice square footage where they could put art or another gallery for repose to kind of think about art in a different way within this marketplace context. Right. That turned into a pretty long-term job now with the Untitled Fair. So I've been the director of programming there. But they moved you up from just doing that to a larger... I came as director of programming and development. And since the fair was only one time of year, it was also a great opportunity for me to actually sort of execute a lot of these other independent projects that I had been keeping on the back burner. But I mean, the way the fairs work is like there's a bunch of galleries and they participate in a fair and they kind of like apply to be part of the fair. Mm -hmm. Are you curating the galleries that go in? What are your creative choices there? Like what what are the choices that you make? I sort of do everything that is outside of the booths. It's a great job. I get to think about everything that happens outside of the gallery. What are some examples of some things that you put together? In 2015, I founded Untitled Radio, which is our radio station, and that's how we know each other. Because We Eat Art was on Untitled Radio. Yeah, we had six episodes of We Eat Art at, at Untitled Miami Beach this year. What's great about being the director of programming is I get to sort of further contextualize how all these galleries fit together. Why are they all here? It sort of adds to the character of the fair as well. I have a lot of freedom because the work that I do doesn't necessarily have to directly connect to the galleries involved. So it can sort of contextualize and augment. What are other examples besides the radio thing of things that you do? So the first year I invited the a choreographer named Madeline Hollander. Mm. We were sort of both reading some theories by an architect and environmentalist named Keller Easterling. What I sort of got from her ideas at that time, it related to my ideas of working with sound and the idea of starting this radio program. She sort of poses this question in a global scale, 
how can we grow by taking away? Mm. So how can you grow, how can you populate through removing? With Madeline, rather than putting up a sculpture or an installation, she did a choreography that was meant to happen outside of the fair tent on the mm. beach. Yeah. So she wasn't physically removing anything, but we actually moved the art outside of the fair. Mm -hmm. And it was a great opportunity to do that in Miami Beach because it was right on, on the, the beach. beach yeah. So it's like this beautiful setting. And to that point, the beach hadn't really been used in that way. Thinking about when I was renting the speakers and like borrowing the chairs. Right kind of going this long route to figure out how to do a video screening. That first year with Untitled, I really learned a lot about large-scale production. Right, yeah, your logistics and <laughs> yeah. like you're producing. It's like yeah. making a movie. Yeah, you're dealing with the fire department, the police department, the city of Miami Beach, permitting, like... I guess because you would run your own space in Berlin, like they were like comfortable being like, yeah, you can, you can move up to this notch and be the boss of people. Yeah, after the project in Berlin, I then came back and I was hired by Marlboro to run their Broom Street space. So they had opened this gallery downtown. So when you running, was it just was it doing the logistics stuff or choosing stuff or both? The space had just started and I was meant to sort of be the director of that space. It was strange because Marlboro is such this massive almost like corporation in yeah, terms of like gallery. Yeah, and it's gallery. very old school in a lot of ways yeah. compared to what you were doing. Well, like, the Broom Street space was supposed to be like their this new space. breath. like yeah. Cool progressive spot. Absolutely. And yeah. so they hired this like cool progressive sound and video curator. <laughs> but I was also there alone every day. So I was both doing sales, managing the space, but also like changing the toilet paper every day. So that, it was- That hustle. Yeah, they I needed somebody who I, wanted to like take ownership of it. The first time I went to a fair and Andy Fraser came down, oh, now I understand why you wear a blazer and jeans. Yeah. Cause you have to like run over there and like hammer something into the wall and then run back and shake hands like, hello, uh, take a look. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, I get it now. Exactly. It's really the only thing you could wear. Gallerists have got, especially male gallerists have gotten really lucky over the last few <laughs> years because these Nike fly knit shoes, those like fluorescent sneakers have mm. become like acceptable <laughs> as dress shoes. Mm -hmm. I'm just seeing men in business situations all over the world wearing like just cool sneakers and it's like, totally acceptable now and it's great for dealers because they're standing all day and yeah hammering and right. uncrating and walking around to museum openings and what are some fashion tips for somebody who's aspires to your position well it depends on if you have an arch in your foot or not but shoes are the most important i recommend clogs clogs yes wooden clogs it's my midwestern i haven't seen you wearing clogs I'm wearing fly nets right now. But those are not clogs. No. If you wear clogs, you could just say it's a sound piece. Yeah, there's something about the ring of wearing heels that feels quite empowering. Taller. Yeah, maybe it's that. But also like it's really like leggings, pants, like for you know. Fashion tips. Um onesies, as convenient as they are, yeah. are a no-no. Because you're gonna sweat. Going to the bathroom is a whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Catwoman problem. <laughs> Layers, always a good idea. Sure. Because art fairs are always either way too hot or way too cold. That's just a fact. Yeah. Because they're all spread out and the, the heating element is like in one area and there's all the walls. Yeah. Absolutely. And then it's Miami. What do you do there? Because that's... 
have a high bar for fashion in some senses, very low in other senses, and hot yeah. and humid. Yeah, and then there's like these crazy monsoons that come through halfway through the day. Yeah, it was fun to, just to think about like way back, like was I curating macaroni pictures? People ask artists stuff like that all the time. Your aunt and uncle like, you're an artist. When did he become an artist? Nobody yeah. goes like, when did you curate? Yeah. A lot of times when you talk to a curator, the conversation is very goal directed. Mm-hmm. Like they're like, tell us about this exhibition. Tell us about this artist. Tell us about this kind of art. Yeah. And I feel like they don't ask about the job of curating, which I think is actually super mysterious to people. It's super mysterious. For example, if I'm coming in through TSA, when you're coming in on an international flight and they ask you, what's your occupation? You see curator and it's like, what? Like, it doesn't make sense. And even like explaining it they to like, my family. Dump like, out they, a bunch of things and be like, all right, pick, yeah. prove it. <laughs> I actually have a little drawing of a British TSA guy asking me what I do and me saying I'm an artist. Yeah. That I show that guy because in England they always ask what you do Mm -hmm. and why you're there and for freeze or whatever. And so I just show them the drawing. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, you can go. That works. So if you just have like some really tasteful selection of something, you can just be like, look, you know, like these are not in and these are in. I just need a picture of me in a black turtleneck with thick rim black glasses posing with a finger on my chin. That says curator. (laughs) Kunst. Kunst. The good thing is when you enter into like Germany or Switzerland, it's like, oh yes, so um, what was your last exhibition? They don't skip a beat. They're like, so what are your thoughts on neoclassicism in the high romantic What about scarves? Do you do scarves? Mmm... I noticed that many of the older than you art bureaucrat ladies really into scarves. Mm -hmm. And I've heard them say it's because of the weather thing. Yeah. Semi-transparent scarves. Because they can be like, really? These fancy glasses. Is this the, what is the curator (laughs) uniform? That's the glasses. You'll start noticing clogs. Yeah. This is a fashion (laughs) prediction. Well, a lot of people say clogs are no-no, but... uh, I say otherwise. Okay. I've got a few scarves. All right. You do yeah. scarves. Okay, yeah. cool. Scarves and clogs. It's a real, it's a hustle. You gotta... I mean, we all gotta hustle. But it's also like, you do the kind, the kind of job where you apply and work your way up, but then you also did the kind of job where you make your own job and go, look, I'm doing a job by myself that I invented in Berlin, and then you applied for something again, and like, that's yeah. a path. A lot of people are, it's very opaque, you know, how you get these kind of positions. It's, yeah. You know, so maybe know some people know things and they'll go curate. There's just people just fucking curating everywhere. Yeah. You can get curated cheese baskets now. They have a curated section at my grocery store. There's curated Sometimes I go vacations. in there and, I, and I'm like, you got a Havarti? I'm going to let you pick because I want to grow that talent. You know, if curating doesn't work out for me, maybe I can go into meat curing. Because it's just two less letters. It's growing by taking away. Yes. See, it's it's all part of the same agenda. Yeah, yeah. I hope I didn't get Keller Easterling very wrong, but, you know, that's what I took out of it. I think that's always what's important. So it's Keller like, Easterling on the podcast, which is more than she was before. So I think interested parties can go. Can I ask you a out. question? Yeah. As an artist, do. both of you. Yeah. In the same way that curating, I'm trying to illustrate an idea or pose a question or sort of weave certain things together in order to distract Makunaima. 
Right. I'm glad that came up because I haven't thought about math. <laughs> no, I still don't know. I, I guess I'm less obsessed with it. And the same thing about reading a book. I think what's important is not necessarily what the writer is trying to say, but what the reader takes away from it. So when you're making work, obviously you have an intention in mind. You see this or you want the viewer to see that or this piece means this. How do you feel about if the reader or the viewer interprets your work in a complete different way? Is that a reaction that you're open to and or grateful for? Or would you rather make a work of art that's so clear that the viewer can only take one sort of idea away from it? You want to go first? I'll go first. My answer is going to be shorter, so I'll go first. All right. I'm making a book about the attempted Puerto Rican Revolution of 1950. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's very literal. I want people to know what happened in Puerto Rico in 1950, Mm -hmm. how they got ripped off. I want to deliver the information to people. But the only thing that's a little weird about it is it was a violent revolution. And man, am I not into violence. Mm -hmm. I'm a a Gandhi man. So I have to draw these people with guns, but I'm not into it. Mm -hmm. So I'm making like, pip, pip, pop, pop, pop. I like while they're shooting at each other to make it silly. You know, I'm trying all these little things. Mm -hmm. And I'm sort of curious how people are going to take it. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a little mix for me in that respect. I don't want people to read it and be like, well, Puerto Rico should get those arms up again because I don't think that they should. Yeah. There's a lot of other ways to do things. Yeah. So that's what's on my brain yeah. with me and my heart right now. It's a pretty solid yes, but you also, like, in those pieces and in your zines, you're making really narrative work. I'm super mm-hmm. narrative. So and, his- that, and based off of a historical yeah. event. Before that, for a long time, I, I, I taught in public schools in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. I just told stories about that. Yeah, like the zines would be like a, you know. But Today sucked. Here's what happened today. For me, the audience is me and everything else is bonus. Mm-hmm. If it does what I want it to do and I look at it and I like it, then any other appreciation on any other level from someone else is just like extra, yeah. you know, free. At the same time, the message that people take away is actually really complicated set of different ideas like there's the people whose messages i'm gonna buy this that's a great message to take away i love that message yeah (laughs) but then also there's like a lot of times interpretation and critique aren't really about the art they are a guess about the artist's intention or psychology Mm -hmm. so it's not an interpretation of the work it's being like oh de kooning hates women that's an interpretation of de kooning anyone in the world no matter what field you're in probably has different feelings about that than they do about their work being judged and then there's judgments about what people think the effect of the work on the world will be and that to me is like a sociological question it's actually science like you can test it you know Mm -hmm. you'd be like here's this here's that here are two populations that happen and that's like a different kind of interpretation strictly speaking i don't care about anyone's interpretation as long as someone's buying it i care about if i like it but all the other things that are really very closely attached to interpretation mm-hmm. that people do in the world with art, I don't really see how anyone could not care about them because a lot of times they have very practical effects on people. When Richard Serra put up Tilted Ark and then they wanted to take it down, mm-hmm. like, he doesn't, doesn't matter, like he may not care what people think of the art, but he cares whether it's up or not. You yeah. know? It's a thornier question than the way it's usually put, which is, do they get the message? Yeah. But you did bring up something which I, when we had Anu on, she had her whole, I'm the, the art mom. Yeah. She's the only other curator we've had on so far. And mm-hmm. she's like, art is irresponsible. Mm-hmm. And my job is to give it a job, to mm-hmm. make it responsible, to yeah. make it 
do things it doesn't want to do because it's good for it in a certain sense. And I don't know how far she would push the metaphor, but the really interesting question was, I was saying like, what's an example, and I would ask you the same thing, someone else's show, an example of a good exhibition, an example of a bad exhibition, but not because of the work, but because Mm. of the curation of the work. Do you have an opinion on that? It's a great question. It makes me want to write a paper about it. She would say, like, oh, I hate the big survey show. At like the, It was, like, the matter of the moment. There's no context. There's this art next to that art. It's like, but I love no context. Like, I like the art. I want to look at the art. I don't care what it's next. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, I love art fairs. Because you go to the art fair and nothing makes sense. And then this guy's next to that guy. And you're like, ah, oh, but you can pick what you like. And you go away. And she's like, I hate that. There's no vision. And I'm like, yeah, but as an artist, I don't want someone's vision on my art. I just want it to be there. Like the purpose of the curator from the artist's point of view is to, they're an art mover. (laughs) They move the art from your studio into some people's friends. And of course, to her, that's not her job at all, right? She's creating a dialogue about a certain thing. You know, she's the mom. I think that art really needs and deserves time and space. And that's a very demanding criteria for art viewing and it's not always possible you mean like you watch something on youtube and that's one experience and you're creating a different bigger experience i mean i've seen i've had really horrible experiences with exhibitions that have really good art but because they're too cramped or too crowded or overhung I really walk away with a a really pessimistic and sort of disgusted experience. Are these like art that has like sound and movement in it? Is that part of the the overcrowdedness or is it just like you wanted more in a different dimension? Art can be sacred. You know, it doesn't matter if it's the macaroni drawing made by your three-year-old or a damn Flavin fluorescent. I don't really think it deserves to be jumbled up. Not a shower, but a grower, like a record to spend some time with. To Yeah. But also in art fairs are everything crammed together. Like, how do you handle that? Well, that's where Untitled is, is unique. We really do try, maybe to our own detriment, to not... There are restrictions in terms of how much art mm. a gallery can bring. For example, we don't give booth spaces that are smaller than 100 square feet, whereas some fairs do these really, like, 25-foot square yeah. booths, and the aisles are really close together, and everything gets really cramped, and they're just trying to sort of provide as much square footage or wall space as possible. Right. Whereas we will, at an added cost, sort of restrict that overhanging mm. to sort of better the experience. Art fairs are an extremely difficult place to see art, and we have to remember this is a trading post. You know, it's not an exhibition. I'm say, I love them. Like, that is my favorite place to see art. So yeah. Like, I love it. Because there's lots of art. And, you yeah. know, it's like, you go to Chelsea, and you're like, in three hours, you see three shows. An art fair, you're like, yeah, I saw everything everyone's making this year. I always do is spin around. Like Spiral Jetty or The Crater. Like, I like these artworks where it's like, this is going to take you a whole day. This is like back to the force field thing. This artist is going to create a set of circumstances where the only thing that you're going to do that day is travel to go see this one thing. And you have to spend, you know, six hours getting there and six hours back, and that's it. I think what I'm trying to say is I don't like overhanging. Sure. Yeah. So <laughs> New York becomes a really difficult place for that. You know, like I think the new museum can't 
do exhibitions. There's just not enough room or space there. But I feel like a lot of times, especially in the city, like creating all of that space Mm -hmm. is almost like, you know, the sizzle and the steak. Mm, You create enough enough space around something and you're creating a sizzle. You're like, look at how much empty space there is. Look at how how portentous it will be when you get to, to whatever the thing actually is. Like, look how much money we've spent to make sure there's nothing distracting you from the pin that we painted orange. To me, that always just feels like a sort of minimalist money gesture, which yeah. is like, we've cleared every distraction out from yeah. this, you know, and my instincts are more the other direction. Yeah. It's like, the world's loud, yeah. be louder, you know? I mean, you're absolutely right, because like, I just went and saw the Club 57 show at MoMA, and it's like 100 plus artists in it, and they're all jumbled on top of each other, and there's video, and there's sound, and there's And it's like one of my favorite shows I've seen in New York in a while. So I think it depends on the art that you're looking at. This is why I didn't want to like say it because I knew, yeah, my foot's in my mouth now. It's showing that it's complicated. It's okay to not have figured out what the things that push a thing one way or the other are. You can figure that out. Having things left to figure out is fun, right? One of the best shows, one of my favorite shows that I've seen in a long time is up at the kitchen right now, Charles Atlas. It's a retrospective, and it's got dozens, if not hundreds, of his works playing at the same time. <laughs> and it's perfect. So for Charles Atlas... But it's like a new piece in a certain sense. Yeah, I think it, it did become a new piece. Yeah, because it's all formatted into this kind of scroll. But I love that. Yeah. So it's, it's like you're getting a new yeah. Charles Atlas. And it is all... Char- it's not Charles Atlas plus 100 other video artists, so that would be a different story. Which, that sounds like a cool show, too. <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah, cool. Art is... Complicated. Complicated. Kunst ist complicated. Kunst ist hard. Well, you've been very generous with mm. your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Cool. Yeah. You I will stop recording, so don't say anything interesting anymore. Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out our guest, Amanda Schmidt. Amanda is curating an exhibition called Defacement at the club in Tokyo. It starts this weekend, July 14th, and it goes all the way to August 31st. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. And don't forget, we have a Patreon. Please consider becoming a patron. Then you will be one of our supporters with your donations. You'll get exclusive episodes, t-shirts, stickers, all sorts of great things. Go to patreon.com backslash We Eat Art. We Eat Art is produced by Paping and mnemonic recordings. Yeah, baby. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. Something about painting just... Maybe it's too still. Still, still, still.